Welcome to On the Bobble Podcast, episode 11. I'm your host, Sabasa J. Weda, and with me is my co-host, Yuki Lee Bender. For today's episode, we're going to do another Fundamentals episode. We got a comment on our last YouTube video that we thought would be a great Fundamentals topic, so we'll go deep into the one topic for both Limited and CC. But before that, how are you doing today, Yuki? I'm doing pretty good. I've been still getting caught up on work um pretty much fully caught up now for the most part of a couple things outstanding but it's kind of nice because that means i can kind of just like maintain the status quo and then focus more on testing um so yeah it's it's been pretty good just slowly catching back up and uh the break from fab has been good but i'm sort of eager to get back in there seems like a lot of interesting developments with um of course, the BNR that we talked about last week, and then we're starting to get the first look at events like the the Battle Hardens. And there's been, since we played Nationals, there's been sort of like the Phi deck came onto the scene, and we got the data from Nationals showing that Briar was doing well. So there's definitely like, feels like there's work to be done, even though it's mostly the same format. Uh, how about you, Jay? Uh, I haven't played any Fab this week. Yeah, I had a friend come over from Toronto or... It was like mostly my friend's friend, but then I got pretty close with him because I got to hang out, went to like Ramble Island, did, did a bunch of random touristy things this last weekend. It was actually pretty good. It was like touring your own city. It was weird, but I would never do it if I was alone. So yeah, it was good. Yeah, sometimes when you live in a place, you don't really get to experience all the things there. You kind of get used to your routine and having an excuse to do it can be nice once in a while. Uh, so let's go into our main topic. So today we're going to be talking about fundamental equipments. Let's start off with a question. What makes an equipment good? Like why, why are they so good? I think that the big thing about equipment is that you start with them in play. So in the context of limited, if you have a piece of equipment compared to not having a piece of equipment in, in a slot, that's just like an extra tool that you have at your disposal. Um, that could translate to like, directly to damage or resources, or it could just be some kind of like beneficial effect, like a talismanic lens that lets you lets you often control the top of your deck. But regardless, like having something in that slot that's giving you some kind of bonus is just so much more valuable compared to not having it. It's like you're just starting each piece of equipment is like you're starting with something um, extra that isn't even in your deck. You you don't you don't have to draw it. It's like already there. Then how do I value equipments? Like, are there is like any equipment good? In general, the better, the best equipments are the ones that can be translated most easily into some kind of resource. Whether that's um, like armor, like if armor is very easy to translate because you can block with it, and that's directly giving you life. Um, something like Goliath Gauntlet, which you can just break and turn into damage. Or even like Snapdragon scalers from from Welcome to Wraith, just getting the extra action point um, is often like a whole extra attack. So the easier that it translates into like some kind of like real efficiency in the game, the and and the better like the the more points that it's worth, the the better it is. So we talked about like how Spellfire Cloak um, can often be worth like a Waning Moon, which is three damage, and three points is going to be you know very very strong and probably stronger than like a Iron Rot piece that is worth only one, even even if they're not in the same limited set. And is there any equipments that are like fundamentally bad or like you want to avoid in general? 
I would say that there's never like a downside to playing an equipment, but certainly it's worth thinking about like this, this comes up, especially in limited, um, but it's worth thinking about like how good the equipment is compared to the other options in the set. I don't know, for example, like some of the quell equipment in Uprising, like the quelling robe and the quelling gloves were uh, a little bit lower picks because there's like class specific pieces that share that same slot that are much more efficient. So while having the quelling piece is better than not having any equipment, it's also not the main equipment you're looking for. So I'd say that like equipment can never be detrimental, but because you can only run one, there's a pretty real opportunity cost there. And you need to kind of balance like the value of making sure that you have something for that slot versus um, trying to get like the the best efficiency that you can out of that, that slot. Yeah, I think I just want one more thing I want to add is uh, if uh, any of you guys drafted Tales of Aria before, there's a, a card called Ragamuffin's Hat. Uh, this was uh, largely, in, at least in our community, was presented as unplayable or close to unplayable. This card is very difficult to turn into any sort of resource or any sort of real, like, tangible effect. Where So this card is very hard to turn into a resource, which is why this card turned into what's commonly known as the worst equipment in Tails. Yeah, it's kind of just like a very marginal amount of hand smoothing where, like, uh, I've, I often found myself like if I'm going to go Arsenal, I could just use it and see what's on top of my deck and potentially put a card on either top or bottom. And it's like a little bit of hand smoothing, but it's 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 pretty marginal. And I think, again, because there's better options in that slot, uh, there was Plume of Evergrowth for both of the Earth heroes, so Briar and Oldham, and then Lexi had Honing Hood. So there, there was like a significantly better option in that slot. So I think I think combination of the, both of those points made it kind of underperform, but but still a Rika Muffins hat is better than no equipment in your head slot. Not by much though. Mm-hmm. So a question would be when would that be better than picking like a playable card in your deck? I would say that so in the case of Rika Muffins hat in particular, I think I would pretty much always take a playable card in my deck unless I'm unless it's a card that like maybe I already know that I'm good on playables and it's a card that isn't really realistically going to be in my deck, then I might pick up Ragamuffin's hat. Um, but in general, I think Flesh and Blood does a pretty good job of making the vast majority of equipment pretty solid. So if you're ever like approaching a new set or a set that you haven't drafted, I would lean towards equipment being at least decent. Um, like decent to good, I would say. There's There's... I'm struggling to think of another one like Ragamuffins that is such a low pick. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, it would be closer to the Runaways from the same set. Yeah, Runaways perhaps not great because you can't get value out of it against Oldham. It's only worth one point, but um, but still, it's you know one point is one point. Then uh, let's talk about Limited specifically. Uh, so equipment and Limited are mainly commons. So. Most of the time when we are doing episodes on this podcast, when we talk about newer sets, we're only going to be talking in with the commons in mind. And typically, L's have much higher ceilings on their block value, their efficiency, just everything about these like higher rarity equipments become very powerful. So it's almost a no-brainer to play them unless they're like, in case of Uprising, like Ghostly Touch, where it is so difficult to activate them, like a Silken Form is actually just 
significantly better. Um, some of the L pieces, uh, the equipments, are L- LSS have have designed them to be more for like a sideboard option, like Alluvian Constellus, also in this uh, Uprising set, which is for one specific matchup or a specific game plan. And those ones are typically not as good in Limited. So we're going to only talk about mainly commons uh, when we talk about Limited. There's There are going to be two main categories for Limited equipment. It's going to be real resources equipment and efficiency equipment. So how we define them is uh, real resources generates literal resources, life, action points, or power. And when we mean by life, it typically is uh, in forms of armor. And examples of these are like, as we said, Iron Rock Gauntlets, uh, Deep Blue, which is a card that would generate three resources by bottom decking a card. So if you bottom deck a red, it will generate two extra resources. So that's real resources. Or cards like Goliath Gauntlet, where you can sacrifice it to give your next attack two power. And then the... Efficiency equipments are some things like Quell and Opt. What Quell does is it turns basically floating resources into life prevention, or sorry, to damage prevention. So that's actually, the equipment itself is actually not representing value on its own. You actually have to like put resources into it to turn it into a different resource. So it's like, it's more turning extra resources you have somewhere into another resource so it's making your turns more efficient uh opt is very similar uh, as we said ragamuffin's hat is hand smoothing opt is another form of hand smoothing or deck manipulation and that could be good in conjunction with other cards so it requires more than just itself for it to be very powerful or good yeah and it's worth noting that these efficiency cards, you you can sometimes get resources out of them. Like it's part of the reason that Quell is good is if you Quell with a, a blue two block and you manage to Quell three times, you've basically turned it into a three block. So that is, it in a sense, has become a real resource. It's just that it's not always easy to realize that, and you need to kind of play into those those play patterns. And it, it's somewhat contextual game to game. Um, same thing with opt, like that could very well translate. Like if you have a Kano deck and you opt into a good spell on top, that could translate into some pretty real damage, but it's not on, on its surface, it's not representing those resources as as easily. It sort of needs other things to go right, or right? it just needs the right event to happen to be able to leverage it into like real real resources. So I think the reason why we separate the equipment into these two categories of real resources and efficiency is to kind of give you a rule of thumb on how to rank them. Um, Something like a quelling sleeve is often, as we mentioned, kind of hard to translate into those resources. And if you compare it to something like Silken Form, which also has quell, but has the ability to create an Ashwing on top of it, um, that Silken Form is much more easy to realize into um, into a real resource because all you need is an ash and then you can turn it into an ash wing. That ash wing probably on average attacks for one and blocks for one, or maybe you get to attack with it twice. So it's usually worth about two points, sometimes even more. Um, but yeah, in that sense, silken form is like directly giving you two points of value and maybe even more. So that's what I think that's why silken form is just a, a much more valuable piece than its counterpart 
quilling sleeves. And in general, um, I think that is the case that these ones that generate real resources are generally better than the efficiency related equipment and higher picks. And you can pretty much, for the most part, compare them based on how efficiently they create these resources or how efficiently they trade into um, damage or life or, or, or whatever it is that they translate into. And I think the last thing I just want to talk about would be Arcane Barrier. Arcane Barrier is only in, I think, Arcane Rising and Uprising. Uprising. Yes. Arcane Barrier is very tricky where this card is an efficiency card, but it doesn't work against a lot of the heroes. And it's a very specific counter towards the wizard class. So in this case, Kano and Icelander. Yeah, and in the case of Uprising, you really only have the option to get Arcane Barrier 1, and having that Arcane Barrier is a huge asset. Um, but in in Arcane Rising, it's a little bit interesting, where I think the more Arcane Barrier you have, um, the less valuable each one gets. So you probably want to have some amount, like AB2, 2 or 3 is pretty nice, but the, like getting AB4 is not so great, because you can no longer pitch a blue like it's it's more than one card at that point to, to ab4 so the the fourth point of ab is pretty invaluable and the third point's probably worse than the than the second point we didn't talk about armor versus life so let's go into that next uh let's uh go back a little bit with the real resources we talk about some of the real resources cards generate life as a resource so iron rock gauntlet or basically any card with uh a block value on it or armor what is the difference between like something that would say let's let's make it hypothetical and say if a card said gain one life by cracking it instead of armor one which one would be better yuki always the the armor I guess with the exception of if there's arcane damage coming into consideration, then that's always a thing. But f- most classes in the game deal physical damage. And as said, against those classes, um, you pretty much always want to value the armor higher than your life. And the main reason is that the armor can be used to stop on hits and can be used to deal with, um, you know, like a, if they have like a snatch for four and you really want to, st- or a Kyloria for four and you really want to stop that on hit having, having, you know, that one extra block on your armor is the difference of a card, um, either either a card for you because you save yourself having to block with an extra card or a card for your opponent where they, they draw a card if you don't block it. Um, so pretty much always you want to value your armor blocks over your life unless you're starting to worry about getting in range of like arcane damage or... Perhaps if you're like, I know this is limited, but perhaps if you have like a, a grasp of the Arc Knight that blocks twice and you're getting really low, you might want to think about like making sure you get both armor blocks out of it. But that's, you know, that's more of a constructed concern than a uh, than a limited one most of the time. Yeah, I think that might be a good segue to talk about CC in general. Uh, let's talk about equipment in CC and how they differ from in limited. So in classic constructed, most people will be playing legendary pieces of equipment uh, just because they are much more powerful in general than the than the common versions. Equipments in CC typically have a very specific role and goes with the game plan. And honestly, most of the time, it shapes how decks start to look like in, in Flesh and Blood. A good example is cards like Mask of Momentum and Ninja, where 
they want to play with cards like uh, Harmonized Kodachi and smaller attacks that they can go very wide to generate more value from Maska Momentum. Uh, or cards like New Horizon for Lexi, where she gets to play with two arsenals now and easily flip up um, cards in arsenal to basically make maximum use of New Horizon. Uh, other cards like Storm Shredders, which recently got banned in Blitz, uh, for the Wizards, they let you go very ex- have very explosive turn cycles where they can do, on their own turn, release a bunch of damage and then on your opponent on and then on the concurrent turn right after they draw up before their opponent draws up they can use their whole hand again to do maximum damage to them um so making it very difficult to block out all the all the damage that Kano throws at you or Ice Nether throws at you and i think the storm traders are especially kind of deck defining in Kano, where that deck can really kind of uh, combo off. Not that Icelander can't, but it's usually like more board state oriented, less Storm Striders oriented, but Kano has like the Aether Wildfire uh, combo lines, and that's often completely enabled by Storm Striders. So like your whole deck is kind of built around finding that Storm Striders turn and maybe getting them low enough that you can win off of that. So often these kind of like not not all legendaries do this, but but the strongest ones will kind of define your deck or perform like some kind of essential function for that hero. And and often the heroes feel kind of designed to, um, they're desi- they're intended to have these equipment go along with them. It it fits in with what they're trying to do. So as we said in the limited portion, there's going to be real resources and efficiency cards in classic constructed, con- classic constructed as well, but. The main difference would be that there are also a lot more recurring effects. Uh, We couldn't really think of any recurring effects that came up in Limited, but in Classic Constructed, there are many, many recurring effects. So the main one being Tunic, um, that one that gets uh, a resource counter every at the beginning of each turn, and then at instant speed, you can remove three counters to produce one resource. And other cards like Crown of Seeds and Grasp of Arknight, which uh, other than just their block value for Grasp, that they generate an effect throughout the game and they can activate it multiple times. And these effects are very powerful, mainly cards like Crown of Seeds and Oldham, where it can keep on generating the flow, um, the flow of cards from the arsenal to their hand. Crown of Seas just fits very well with that game plan, as well as combining it with other cards like Ram's Head, where it uses other floating resources to generate more value, and they're all recurring effects. So essentially in Classic Constructed, these recurring effects can really define the game. Yeah, and you'll notice a lot of those kind of like build-defining L's that we talked about, like Mask of Momentum, like New Horizon, um, they they tend to be these recurring effects. Um, that's not always the case. There are there are very strong one-time use effects that we're we're going to talk about. So it's not just as simple as like recurring equals better. But because um, like like grasps grasp effect is is useful for filtering and it can come up, but it's definitely not. You know, like what makes grasp great is that it has the block two and block one attached to it. The effect itself is not necessarily um, fantastic. So. It's not as simple as like one is better than the other, but 
you know, there's definitely different types of equipment that can do, give different bonuses. And typically, the longer the game goes, the better these recurring effects get. And the shorter the game goes, the the better the one-time use effects are. And we kind of see examples of this um, in CC right now. Like Phi will often use masculine momentum in some cases, and then pouncing links in in others. And it can kind of just depend on like how your game plan lines up against your opponents. So it's not always like one is strictly better than the other. Okay, then Yuki, do you want to go into one-time use cards? Yeah, so one-time use effects are cards like um, Crown of Providence, um, Storm Striders, Snapdragon Scalers, that kind of give you just one powerful activation. And you know, all the all these cards are kind of staples. Um, Goliath Gauntlet, which you mentioned, is like another one-time use effect that sees a fair bit of play. Um, and some of these effects are really strong, like in particular, the Storm Striders and the Crown of Providence, I think are, even though they're one-time use, are incredibly powerful. Um, you could also put Stalagmite in this category. It's technically two-time use, but it's it, it's it's kind of like a limited thing. You can do it twice for a very big effect. Um, and I think, you know, Stalagmite, another really incredible equipment. So there's lots of good examples of um, equipment that sort of is a one-time use or, or a limited use equipment, but is is still very very powerful um pouncing links as well one piece of equipment that's sort of interesting because it kind of straddles these two categories is um is the spellbound creepers for runeblade um which essentially lets you pay a resource to play a non-attack action as an instant so long as you've attacked and um spellbound creepers are interesting because they do, they in a sense almost kind of do what Snapdragon scalers do. They cost a resource to activate, but they're kind of like a, you know, give you an action point for one resource. But what's so powerful about the Spellbound Creepers is that if you have a way to keep them around by deal, dealing arcane damage, you can actually sometimes activate this two or even three times. So even though it is this one time use effect, the fact that you can kind of use it multiple times or use it and then block is, I think, why Creepers is such a powerful piece of equipment when we look at deck lists uh of typical cc decks we see more equipment pieces than what can typically be equipped like two head pieces or two foot pieces when is a good time or like how do we decide which cards are good cyborg options uh in these for these equipments equipments are often used to kind of shore up um, certain matches or to give you extra tools in certain matches where you you need to have a little bit of a different game plan or can be used um, directly for like wizards or, or rune blades to, to get that arcane barrier that you need is another common use. But um, quite frequently we'll see a change in equipment to signify a change in game plan. Like uh, for example, if Oldham wants to play Rampart that often kind of enables a longer value-based game plan where Stalagmite allows you to play a little bit more aggressively and a little bit more uh, tempo-oriented. So perhaps depending on the role that you're wanting to take in that matchup, uh, you might want to choose your equipment differently. So often um, these equipment are some of the most powerful sideboard slots that you can have in your deck because they start in play and because you don't need to draw them and they can fundamentally kind of change the dynamics of the game. 
I guess another example of this would be Phi and CC wanting to use links to get through um, to kind of like burst damage old him because it, it's it's very hard to proc mask and momentum against a deck that's so happy to block you. So um, just like finding spots where maybe there's like another more efficient piece is is often well worth the sideboard slot in any kind of uh, constructed format. And then then of course in Blitz you have a whole bunch of extra equipment, so you get a kind of pick all the best ones for for whichever matchups you're worried about oh that reminds me of um sideboarding and limited as well so sometimes you will have options to sideboard equipment and limited it is obviously not as common as in constructed because you can't curate your deck or you don't really get to choose which cards you always have in your pool but there are some equipment pieces that are much better against one hero or another hero. So don't forget to sideboard or change your equipment based on which hero you are playing against. Uh, the most common one will be um, in Uprising, Helios Mitre and Glacial... Glacial Horns. Glacial Horns, thank you. Uh, so against the Icelander Mir, you definitely want Helios Mitre over Glacial Horns uh, because the Icelander player gets to respond to the Glacial Horn trigger if it is a blue card anyways. So makes Glacial Horns effectively a a useless card or very, very low impact card as Helios Mitre can actually stop arcane damage. So that's just a side note I wanted to add. Yeah, and we also see this um, with Dromai and... Dromai as well with the the silent stilettos because the text on it is so marginal that um, like often you'll see a Dromai just run silent stilettos but in my ideal Dromai deck I'd probably also have access to the quelling slippers just to be able to deal with like Ashwings or Phoenix Flames from Phi um, so so yeah just like once again um, look for those opportunities when you when you have a sideboard that makes sense and then you can change up your equipment even if it's not uh, usually the case yeah i think you'll get a big edge in just um just being aware that you have these options i've seen some people not even not even think about it and they just present the deck that they've like pre-built um but definitely when you sit down for your game and at the beginning of game or at the setup phase of the game where you're revealing your heroes, uh, you should definitely be looking at all of your options, including your equipment. So we're just going to move on to the question that we talked about earlier in the episode. Uh, it is from Michael Radosevic. I'm sorry if I butchered your name. They ask, one question I had was wondering what equipment they are most effective at helping you cover on-hit effects or let you keep larger hands for the swing back. However, let's use the example of only having a 3-block available on your equipment, a 2-block plus tunic, and the Icelander opponent presenting Nourishing Emptiness, which you could full-block using all of your equipment and a 3-block from hand. How can players better assess when or when not to give up an important piece of equipment to deny their opponent command over the game. So I'm assuming they're talking about the on hit on nourishing emptiness. Fantastic question, and one of the the deeper parts of Fab because I think it is um, it is quite contextual. Um, there's a lot of things to consider in this question. Um, 
One thing to think about is that that two block equipment is probably pretty worth using um, in this spot, regardless of whether you throw the tunic, just because uh, unless you're playing against like a Michael Hamilton Icelander where they're attacking you with attacks a whole bunch, um, Icelander often doesn't attack you that often and kind of getting your value out of it when you can um, is quite important. in terms of the on-hit, though, it really it's a much easier decision if you have something like Grasp, which doesn't get consumed. But when you are giving up a piece of equipment like a Tunic or like a Spellbound Creepers, you really need to kind of try and weigh what is the value of that Tunic? Like, how many Tunic counters are you likely to get over the course of the game? And that's going to depend like on the life totals, how far into the game you are, and so on. Um, versus what is the value of that on hit that they're getting? So in the case of nourishing emptiness, it's like a it's a whole extra card plus I guess plus one damage. So you can kind of like math out and try to evaluate um, what's more important: this tunic counter, which is going to let me play around their coronet peak, or maybe just um, getting the value off the block and essentially blocking for. In this case, it's essentially like kind of like a block for like four. 4.5 because you're getting the the one damage plus a card um how would you go about evaluating these kinds of spots where you have to weigh giving up an equipment versus um stopping it on hit yeah so in this particular case i would almost never block with the tunic just because the counter on the tunic is worth so much in so many different spots in the game whereas the four life or as you said four and a half life that they would generate by giving away the tunic is going to be great. This is going to be different against Kano, obviously, where Kano has more of an explosive game, wherein the games become quite a bit shorter. Then the tunic will become less valuable. I actually wouldn't ever give a Kano player an extra card because they can translate that one card into more than four damage. And being able to generate the tunic counter over nine turns is... To generate three resources from a tunic would require nine turns. And against Kano, you don't actually have that much leeway. But against Icelander in particular, there is a good possibility you are going to get nine extra turns. Maybe I am a little bit thinking more in a headspace of an olden player where we're trying to get to a longer longer game. Um, this may be a little bit different for some, some, some of the more aggressive decks uh, that might be playing Tunic that isn't planning to get more than two resources from a tunic so as yuki said it's just really important to figure out not the average game length but the average amount of times you'll be able to activate your tunic to translate its ability for the resource and remember just against exactly icelander in this exact scenario once you don't, once you decide not to block with this tunic, if they're playing the nourishing emptiness, that's their only attack in their deck. So then you're never gonna get that one block later in the game, like against other heroes. So in this case, you really need to be able to activate the tunic four, maybe even five times for you to be very, very worth it. Yeah, and and the math does get a little bit murky because you can kind of say like, well, a resource is worth roughly like one point, like the same as the damage. Um, but of course, we all know that sometimes tunics can translate into a lot more than a damage. Um, for example, the tunic counter can translate into a whole card if you stop a coronet peak with it. 
or if you're a rune blade and you get a swing Rosetta, Car- Rosetta Thorn for four damage uh, that you wouldn't have otherwise gotten to swing, that that again is pretty much a whole card worth of value. So I don't think it's necessarily that you need the three or four activations, but you should certainly be thinking about how many more t- tunic counters am I going to get? And maybe the current the current value on that tunic, uh, in, in the case of tunic specifically, like how many counters it has left on it is also part of the calculation. Um, but you know, the, the, the question gets a lot closer when the life totals get low. Like if you're at, you know, suddenly if you're at eight, well, going to seven against Icelander and giving them five cards, if they like, let's say they have storm striders up, like that, that becomes very, very scary. And and you're probably going to lose if you do that. And also the, the kind of expected value of that tunic is much lower because there's so little time left in the game. So it's kind of always dynamically shifting and changing and you kind of need to rely on your matchup knowledge to think about how much longer that game is likely going to last and kind of like what the value of keeping that equipment is. Um, and we see the same thing with like spellbound creepers all the time comes to mind. Like sometimes players just choose to block with it because they realize it's getting too late in the game and having an opportunity to to activate it is is increasingly less likely the farther you get into the game. Yes, yes. And honestly, that's typically what differentiates a high-level player and your typical like mid calling or battle hardened players will be this decision of when to block with these very important equipment piece with blade break that uh, typically has some very strong recurring effects so even cards like new horizons uh, as a lexi player or masco momentum all have the same kind of dynamic where when do you give this equipment up and once you give it up can you still win the game is going to be very important Okay, um, I think that typically wraps up everything we wanted to say. Anything else you wanted to add about equipment, Yuki? No, I think that more or less concludes everything. Um, one thing I will say, just sort of like from a game design standpoint, is I am pretty interested in some of these like efficiency equipments because I feel like we've kind of seen fewer of them, and some of them are pretty interesting. Like if you look at Plume of Evergrowth from Tails, that can do some pretty cool stuff where like enabling a fuse or enabling like that earth card when you need it can actually be super valuable. It's like one of the, it's like probably like the one in that category, like efficiency for limited, that's actually really, really strong. And I hope that we kind of see um, more of these kind of pop up over time where they they just allow you to be like a little bit more uh more efficient and um i think it's kind of like a design space that hasn't been fully explored so yeah i guess just keep in mind if you're going into future limited sets that just because these efficiency equipment are generally less powerful doesn't always mean it's the case i think there's some opportunity to make some some very powerful um efficiency style equipment it just needs to have the right kind of i don't know the right text on it yeah, it really depends on the format too. So like Quell would be significantly worse in Uprising if Icelander didn't exist. But because Icelander exists, I think Quell becomes very, very powerful as a alternative to Arcane Barrier. So yeah. every kind of equipment in and basically in any any format, CC or limited, is very contextual. So you know, as the meta shifts, as the format changes, as a new format comes out the equipment you want to play 
is going to change with that. So just keep in mind, don't get too attached to a specific equipment, mostly in the common slots that are very interchangeable. Just don't get too attached to it and be very flexible about playing different types of equipment. And that might be a good way to improve your game or to get an edge up against other players. All right. I think that's going to wrap up our episode for the week. Um, if think, As always, thank you for listening. And if you have any questions that you want answered on our show, uh, please comment on our most recent YouTube video um, with your question. We'd love to hear from you. Um, other avenues you can give us questions is on my Twitter. So that's at Yukili Bender. Um, or you can email the podcast at onthebubble at gmail.com and, and send your questions directly. Um, really, anytime you want to interact with the podcast, whether that's you know talking about it with a friend, commenting in the comment section, giving us feedback, w- whatever it is, we always really appreciate it. And it, it really does a lot for the podcast. So um, yeah, if you ever have questions, please uh, reach out to us and we'd be happy to, we'd be happy to chat. We played Cube yesterday. <laughs> I don't know if that's the most interesting sign-off, but maybe. We oh, could we talk can talk about it. Yeah, okay, okay. Let's talk, let's talk about the Cube. I, I, I can just complain. Enough. I can just complain about not getting to play the game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Sucks. <laughs> okay, okay. So, me and Yuki, we uh, played... A magic cube we only had six people with it but one of my roommate actually has a cube uh, a vintage cube uh, with like power nine everything a lot of it's a proxy actually actually a lot of it's real except except the power nine but um and it's like full foil and everything it's it's, it's a really nice cube but either way this is a magic the gathering cube and, and- oh jay sorry just um for any of our listeners what what is what is a cube in case they're not familiar. Oh yeah, that's a that's a good point. So a cube is a curated list of cards, typically singleton, that we essentially shuffle up all the cards in the cube um, or the curated list. Essentially, we shuffle it all up. It's all sleeved up already, and we make basically packs out of it. So in this case, we make packs of fifteen, uh, and we draft it like like any any flesh and blood draft or any magic draft. Um, and we play games with that. Did I miss yeah. something? Uh, no, I think that's a pretty good description. Um, in the case of this this vintage cube, it's sort of like a, a cube from that collects all the cards over Magic's, a, a lot of the most powerful and iconic cards over Magic's history. Um, and I, I'm kind of curious if we'll we'll see a flesh and blood cube down the road as we get like a larger card pool and and there might be some cool design things, but it it is a little bit tricky with the with the class system. So as far as I know, there's no flesh and blood cubes yet. Um, that being said, if you do know of a flesh and blood cube, um, please let us know because I, I would love to try out a flesh and blood cube sometime. Yeah, honestly, I don't. I wouldn't even mind just putting it together and just trying cubing a couple times. But uh, let's talk about yesterday's cube in particular. Uh, so it was like me, Yuki, and a couple of our friends. And uh, we did a money draft. So basically, our team money draft, I guess that's what it's called. So uh, we get separated into three, uh, into two teams. And we are basically playing against the other team th- 
a match against each other player on the team. And the team with the best record wins the draft. Uh, that's a very typical way of playing cube in like more of the competitive scene in Magic. And we like it. We like doing that. Like we honestly, once a month is a good, good rate to do a Magic Cube if possible. Mm-hmm. But either way, so the first round, uh, I'm playing against Yuki. And for those that know, I am playing Renin 6. I'm playing green. I'm playing a green four color combo deck with Renin 6. And on the first game, Yuki, did you mulligan to 6? Honestly, I don't remember. I think I did in one of the games. I don't remember which of the two. I think it was the first one because that's why I was like laughing so hard. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Yuki mulligans the six and um, she went first. No, I went first. I went first. I went first. I went first. And she plays an island. And then I get to... I play like a mana dork and pass... On her second turn, she plays another land, but then this is where the fun begins, where I go turn two, wasteland, pop her one of her lands, and then she goes, oh, I can't play anything, plays another land, and then I play strip mine, which is another land destruction card, and strip her land away, and then she plays a, uh, an artifact that generates mana, and then I get to go play Renin 6, return the strip mine to hand, on the turn after, rip her artifact that generates mana and then rip her other land and if you guys played magic before she was just stuck on one or two lands the whole game and what renin six does is it gets to keep on picking up strip mine so she never gets to play magic ever again yeah super fun and interactive and and part of the cube experience honestly there's some uh, very unfair decks that can that can be out there and and my deck was a little bit on the the fairer side and the slower side and i wasn't really able to um, find a way to interact with with chase combo yeah and it was I, I was laughing so hard my team was laughing pretty hard that like yuki just couldn't play any cards just draw go draw go play land get strip mined and then she conceded in like turn five or six <laughs> and what's really funny was that the second game um there's a card called time vault which says just uh, it enters the battlefield tapped and you can tap it to take an extra turn and, and it, there's a combo and it with this... untap. it doesn't untap naturally that's that's important oh yeah and it doesn't untap naturally and the way you're supposed to untap it is by skipping your turn and it untaps it but there are cards like a card called voltaic key which is named very good where it says pay one and tap it and untap target artifact which means you get to untap this time vault and you get to take an extra turn again then at the beginning of your turn you untap and then you can untap the time vault with your key and then take an extra turn again so if you guys can tell this is just an infinite turn combo and i got to pull this off on turn four against yuki uh without her basically interacting with my ward, and uh, she didn't get to play Magic again. So I 2-0'd her, and she just didn't get to play Magic. Yeah, it, it was unfortunate, because I did have some interaction in hand, but it was all sorcery speed, and because Jay was able to drop both pieces and go off all in the same turn, I wasn't actually able to interact, um, compared to like if he had just played a piece and then, and then tried to 
go off on the next turn. Um, so yeah, that was our cube. Um, unfortunately for me, a lot of my games were actually like this. I, I also played against a Narset Wheel deck that also had Leovald, and I just got... And it had like all the fast mana, so I'm just like sitting there trying to play my three drops, and they just, you know... Uh, Mana Crypt, Mox, Narset, Wheel You, and it's like, oh, okay, that's great. <laughs> Your hand's so gone, you don't get to play Magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, cube's fun, I do enjoy it. Every time I cube, it does give me a little bit more appreciation for Fap, where, um, I don't know, just like all the games are, are generally fairly close, but... You know, cube has its own appeal, and and doing those those very unfair things can be uh, can definitely be pretty fun, especially if you're on the other side. Uh, you're you're the one doing the unfair things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like magic. The difference between magic and flesh and blood is like in magic, there are a lot more non games. Where in flesh and blood, there's very little non games. Uh, obviously, some non games can exist, but they are very rare. I think. Rare enough that it doesn't it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. For sure. Okay, I think that's long enough. Uh I think we will call it a night. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening.